You're listening to Therapy for Your Money, a podcast about all things money and finance for therapy practice owners. If you want to feel confident and in control of your financial life, then you've come to the right spot. I'm your host, Julie Harris. I'm an accountant and the owner of Green Oak Accounting. My firm specializes in working with private practices across the US, and my team and I have worked with hundreds of private practice owners. I'm on a mission to share all the best practices I've learned along the way because I want you to have a profitable private practice. My new book, Profit First for Therapists, is available at most online retailers. You can get it in paperback, audiobook, or ebook as well. Go check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Therapy for Your Money. Today, we're talking about interns, uh, more specifically, the cost of having interns, and I'm sure also the, the financial opportunities of having interns, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so today we are talking with Dr. Tara Sanderson. Hello, how are you? Hi, I am so good. Thank you so much for letting me be here and share all of my knowledge about interns with you. Yes, I, I, I can't wait to hear all about it. So uh, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm a licensed psychologist in Tigard, Oregon. And uh, my practice is considered a teaching practice. I love the aspect of helping people come in together and launch, um, whether it's into their own private practices, into other group practices. Um, My goal, one of my core values is learning. And so I want us all to be enveloped in that attitude of learning. And so I've been working with interns and supervisees uh, since 2016 in my private practice specifically. And then before that, in a lot of other ways. And I just think it's super fun to do that. I'm also an author and an entrepreneur and I teach courses. I'm pretty busy. A lot of things, a lot of things going on. I find that so neat that your goal is to kind of, what what I'm imagining is uh, getting little baby bird therapists like to the edge of the nest and like push them off so they can fly away. It's such a rare Absolutely. thing too, right? We, we, I hear often at least like, oh, I don't, I want to train people, but I don't want them to leave. And like your goal is for them to fly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, I think that the people who know they're not employees who know they want to run at their own business need opportunities to learn all of that side of it while they are growing so they can launch and do their own thing. And then I think there are some people out there who desperately just want to be an employee and you, you really just need to scan and try and figure out who's who and make sure that you're filling your practice with the right people. Okay, so kind of unrelated question, but how do you scan for that on the on the interviewing during the interviewing process? I mean, a real easy question is like, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Do you see yourself working for somebody else or do you see yourself running your own thing? And a lot of people are scared to answer that question. And so I I give them the impetus of, you know, letting them know who I am as a practice, that a lot of my goal is to help people launch if that's what they want. Um, and, and in that, my transparency, and I let you look at all of my finances, I let you talk to me about why I made decisions that I did. And, and then, and then ask that question, is that something you're wanting? Or do you want some place to settle in and kick it for the next 20 years of your career? Um, and that usually gives people that openness of like, oh, she's already into speaking my language. I, I thought I was going to come in here and sneak that information, but uh, she's just offering it. Yeah, yeah. I want to be my own boss someday. Great then let's do that. If my whole practice was trying to find people who were going to stay for 20 years, I don't know that that question would go as well, but because right. I, I'm looking for it, it, it tends to work pretty well for me. Okay. That, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So speaking of interns, what are some of the costs associated with having interns, either direct costs, hidden costs, things that people don't expect? 
Yeah, I think the the easy ones are, you know, obviously when you have a program like Simple Practice or Google or whatever it is, you have to pay for an extra user. There are people out there who have said, well, can't I just have them log in under my name or can't I just, you know, you could, that is technically possible in the universe. And that's not what's best. One of the things that we have to think about all the time with interns is that we are teaching them how to do the right thing in every action we take. So when I say it's okay for you to log in as me and write the note and then like kind of secret sign it as you did it, but it looks like I did it. I'm teaching them that that's how we do it in this industry. And that's not how we do it in this industry. HIPAA says everybody has to have their own logins. Everybody has to have their own things. Now, if you don't like paying for the cost of that, look for services that that will give you a discount on interns or advocate for systems to have discounts for interns. I think that... I think the more that we can all speak up to say, hey, this person is doing this much work and is under my supervision, I we need to pay less for them because it's not the same as a regular licensed clinician, the more the services that we pay for may reach back out to us and say, okay, let's let's figure out a plan. I know there are several services who don't charge at all for students or pre-licensed folks. Um, so you can find services if, if your goal is decreased cost, you can find services who do that. But one of the hidden costs that I think we don't think about, especially as bosses, is how much our time is being spent on things. Yeah. I don't know about most of your listeners, but yeah. you know, I'm salary. And so there are lots of times where I kind of just look at everything I do as being <laughs> what I do for work. Um, and and I don't I don't get to that point where I'm tracking how much time I'm spending on different tasks because like my whole life is running this job, right? Right. right. And when your interns are around, you do have to think about how much time you are putting into their learning and growing in those pieces. My recommendation is always to do some sort of time study. Um, And my way of doing that is, whether it's on the computer, on my Apple Watch, or on my phone, is to set an alarm to go off every five minutes. A lot of um, like workout apps have those repetition timers um, that you can use that way. And then as you're doing stuff, have a little piece of scrap paper out. And every time it dings, put a little hash mark next to whatever it is that you're doing. And you can start to track the time that you're spending in all of those activities. Um, And that really helps a ton for me to be able to know for sure. It takes me about three hours per intern um, for any work that I do across the board. So if I have 10 interns and it takes me three hours per intern, that is 30 hours of my week that I am spending on my interns. Okay, so three hours per week per intern mm-hmm. is what is like, for example, what it takes for you. That's a lot. That's a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. Do, do you usually have 10 interns at one time? <laughs> no, <thank goodness. laughs> that's a lot for one little human. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my max student interns that I had at one time was six. Um, students, I feel like take a little bit more than uh, like associates do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the max I had at one time was six. Three of them were uh, just assessment uh, interns. So I only I, I I met with them kind of in big chunks for shorter time because of uh, the assessment process, not needing that regular interval of of the stuff that the therapy component would. Okay. And so not all states are created equal, but what about um, billing for the work that they do? 
Yeah, that is a great question. I have been in the throes of incident two or supervisory billing for the last four years. Mm -hmm. um, I have met with legislators. I have met with big wigs at, at insurance companies. I have been countless hours on the phone <laughs> about these things. And we are seeing some really big and good changes that are coming out of that whole, whole ordeal. And the biggest thing for me is that in order for you to know for sure, if you're, if the, if you can bill for those pieces, you have to have a couple of very specific questions you can answer. Number one, is it legal in your state to do that? Because for some different categories of therapists, it may not be legal to do it. And for some states, they may have a rule that say you can't do that. Even if the insurance company says you can, the state may say you can't. So you have to know that aspect first. The second is then, of course, does the insurance company allow you to do it? And my advice on that piece of it is that don't trust anybody on Facebook who says that you can do that. Get something in writing from your insurance company that says you can do that. And it may take 10, 15, 20 calls to get to the right person who can get you that policy. I don't ever ask the customer service rep on the phone. I ask for their supervisor several times over to then get to somebody who I can say, hey, I'd like to know your policy on this. Not just, is this possible? Can you send me your policy? Because ultimately those policies are for us as independent contractors for those insurance companies. And therefore, we have access to those policies. We just need to know what to ask for. So asking for the policy is the thing that really kind of solidifies it for you. Some companies are getting so much better at putting it in your provider manual, which okay. is great. Um, and if it's in your provider manual, you don't have to go get secondary permission from a supervisor up somewhere in that company. It's right there in your provider manual that you can do it. The biggest element that I would then say, the third part of it is know how to do it. So some insurance companies will require that both names be on the claim. Some insurance companies will require that only the uh, supervisor's name be on the claim. Okay. Some of them have like little extra codes, all sorts of different things. So you do have to know kind of all those details and keep them straight for which insurance companies you're doing because it's never straight across the board. In addition to that, I also think about the, the aspect of cash pay services. So knowing your legal laws around whether or not you can charge for student work, because uh, some states won't let you charge for student work at all. Uh, student work versus associate or pre-licensed right. work, right? Um, and then also looking at what's your goal. One of the big things that I wanted to have student interns in my practice for was to be able to provide low or no cost services to the community. So when I built my budget, I built my budget, including my time and the money it was going to cost to have them. But I didn't build their income into what I was requiring in order to stay afloat as a company. Okay. Because I wanted it to be 100% if every person who came in the door and saw a supervisee didn't pay anything, that was going to be okay with me because that was my gift to the community I work in. If they did bring in something, all the better to Wonderful. offset some of those costs, right? Mm -hmm. But I was willing to pay those costs in that way. Um, and that was my mission and my model, not everybody's, but I, I think that that is an important factor. So I, I burst out laughing when you said, don't get advice from Facebook groups, because I feel like I've said that so many times about accounting specifically, right? And like, please don't take accounting advice from someone in a Facebook group who's not an accountant who doesn't, uh, oh, my brother's cousin's accountant said, no, that's not, yeah, get it yeah. from the the source, like someone who actually knows the, the tax code, yes. actually knows it's what a great opportunity is. to be introduced to new topics, but yes. then once you're introduced to the new topic, you go research it yourself. You yes. get all of the information that it's important for you to feel comfortable to stand behind it. Don't just trust, oh, somebody on Facebook said I could. 
that's not helpful. That's not. Yeah. What, what are some of the ways then around billing specifically that people get in trouble or, or maybe in like a, a, a gray zone ethically? You know, the, the question that comes up so much is the clinical supervisor versus administrative supervisor kind of drama of who has to be on the insurance panel in order for it to go through. Okay. Right? And I, I, from every, every insurance company I've talked to, every, everybody I've talked to, the person that you are billing under has got to take full responsibility for the client you are serving. So to me, that says the administrative supervisor who is just making sure that you're meeting your hours or, you know, you know, following protocols or doing whatever. And, and, and isn't taking responsibility for those clients cannot be the person you're billing under. The person who is taking responsibility clinically for those clients has got to be in that panel or in that network or in that whatever way that is to be able to bill for those clients. And, and I know that that causes a hardship for some of our, for some of our smaller companies or, or really for any of our companies, because there, you know, there are some people who don't want to be on insurance panels or don't want those pieces, but can qualify as a supervisor. We really, we really need to be strategic because I think the more that we get open into this arena with insurance companies of being able to do this, the more we're going to get scrutinized on how we do it and the more rules that are going to continue to fall in. And I just, I worry that, uh, that if we go to loosey goosey at first, we're, we're definitely going to hit some really strong rails later. Got it. So being kind of on the up and up now means hopefully less additional yep. regulation later. Um, well, so is there a way that a supervisor can, can be both a, a clinical and administrative supervisor? Yeah, so a lot of companies separate those out because it becomes a dual role for the for the clinician. I was just in a supervision training the other day um, where one of the supervisees said, "Can a, can a clinician ever feel a hundred percent safe to come to their clinical supervisor if that's also their boss or their administrative supervisor who could fire them?" And I was like, "Ooh, good point." Like, no, you couldn't ever be safe enough to say, hey, this was the bad thing I did, or this was the thing I tried and it failed miserably, if you're also worried that that person could fire you. So is it possible? Yes. I mean, I'm that person in my office. I'm the clinical supervisor. I'm their administrative supervisor. I'm their boss. I'm everything. The way that I make that work for my clinicians is I have a clinician outside of my practice who's not associated with me, who is the go-to person. So if my clinicians ever feel like I'm telling them to do something um, awkward or unethical or just giving them bad clinical advice, they can contact this person at no charge to them and have the and, and get some consultation around what I've said or what I'm doing. That person is, is ethically responsible to, to tell me if I've done something terribly wrong or if I'm you know doing something shady. Um, and my office has an agreement to pay them for their time, no matter how much that is. So if that person spends three hours complaining about me to this person, um, to this other clinician, I will pay, absolutely pay for those three hours because I want it to be a, a free and open place to do that. I also do that with my HR. Um, so my husband and I are pretty much the, the, uh, the only people in my company but that aren't clinicians. And it's really hard if they have something that has gone wrong with either of us to complain to either of us, right? So I have an HR company outside of my practice to do the same thing that, that isn't, I don't, I only pay them for services rendered. Um, I, they aren't an employee of my company, so they don't have any like 
you know, reason to do something that would benefit me. Their job is really just to be a, you know, a, an, an outside entity to be able to support my team. And I would encourage that for any small practice to find somebody to be able to have your people have somebody to reach out to. So how, how did you introduce that? Like, let, let's just take the example of the third party, I'm assuming is a clinician, right? Who's doing basically mm-hmm. case consultation. Like, how did you identify that person? How do you introduce them to your supervisees? Like how, I, I've actually never heard of that. Like how, tell me how that came about. And yeah, works. yeah. I uh, have spent, you know, years being a psychologist here in our community and and really just started noticing the people who were, what I would consider kind of the most ethical people, the person you would want to run an ethical question by. And then I started developing a relationship with them. So when I started my private practice, I knew I wanted them to be involved, Okay. but I didn't need them to be an employee. I just needed them to be a sounding board. Right. And when I hired my first person, um, I, I thought to myself, like, this is the moment to build that system. So instead of a, a typical hierarchy of, of a practice where it's like, here's the bosses, here's the other people and all of the pieces. Mine is more of like, um, kind of like a mind map or a circle um, that just shows how we all intertwine to each other. And so I have a little bucket on the side that's that's about ethics and consultation um, outside of me. So that bucket has not only this person um, who's their go-to person, but has other clinicians. So if I'm on vacation or if I'm just out at a doctor's appointment for the day or whatever, it's also got people who, who can they can reach out to. Those people regularly come in and do part of our training or come to our case consultation meetings um, so that they're they're not foreign to to my team. They're somebody that they know that they've seen before okay. that they've interacted with but aren't a part of our team right. um, for that purpose of making sure that they don't owe me anything. They are getting paid for an hour by hour service. Even if they come in for training or come in for case consultation, they're getting paid in for an hour by hour you know, you submit the bill and, and that's, and I'm paying you for your expertise. That's a really interesting setup. I like it. I think that's really interesting. And it's really not that expensive. I know it sounds like I pay them a lot of money, but it's really not that expensive to have them do that because if you're running your practice, right, they shouldn't need all of that extra consultation all of the time. But in case they do, you're, you're really putting an insurance policy around your practice to say, my team have someone to go to if I'm doing something shady. Yeah. Which I'm sure is never happens, but just in case, just in case you have that that safety mechanism in place. Um, I want to ask you, is there anything specific that needs to be set up to do supervisory billing? Well, like, are there EHRs that do it better than others? I don't know if you want to name names, but like, what, what are the kind of systems that you need in place for that? Yeah, the first system I would say is your internal process. So I'm a big believer in creating a manualized process for everything that you're doing, including supervisory billing. And that's both on the front of like, how do I do it for each insurance company? Mm -hmm. But also, how do I teach my people about it? So I like to have all of my people read the contract and read the the, um, provider manual for each of the insurance companies highlighting the section on on incident to billing. Because one of the things that came out when I was first doing some incident to billing was I got a lot of hate mail around um, that is unethical. You can't do that. And I kept looking around going, my insurance manual tells me I can. Where are you getting this information? And it really was that part of like, you're billing for a service you didn't do. 
Um, and so there's this, this old uh, knowledge around that piece of it. And I wanted to make sure that my clinicians, if they told their friends that they were, that they were able to take these insurance panels, um, that they didn't use the wrong language, that they were very clear on what they were doing. So I wanted to make, I kind of gave them this, like, here's your primer in, in what it is like to work with insurance, what incident to billing is, what your responsibilities are, what my responsibilities are. I make them take a little test on it and then, um, and then, you know, store all that in their system here. Um, and then <clears throat> that is part of my process before I ever get to a place where I'm billing for someone, I make sure that they understand all the rules and all of those pieces. And I think that's a really strong foundation because then they're not perpetuating a myth out there in the world that they can take this insurance. My supervisees say, I am allowed to do incident to billing for insurance companies A, B, and C, which is a very different thing than making it sound like you're contracted with insurance companies A, B, and Right. And mm -hmm. also I would imagine it can remove some of the, the the shame they otherwise may have felt if they said like, oh, I'm doing this. And someone says like, oh, you can't do that. Like that's another, oh my God. right? Like if they have, because they're equipped with the knowledge, that's, that's absolutely, absolutely. Other than that, inside of the EHR, you want to make sure that your EHR allows you to do um, a supervisory signature on, on the documentation. Um, it's really not enough to have everything signed by them and just have like this one line at the bottom that says, yeah, yeah, she's supervised by whoever it really does need to know, <coughs> need to show that you super, that you signed that document. And the reason that that's important is because I think that all insurance companies are going to lean heavily into that. Not only are you doing good supervisory practice with them, because that's starting to show up in some of our contracts now, um, but they're going to have a line in there really quickly that says that you sign off on all of that documentation. Um, because I think they thought that all medical providers just do that. And I think in our industry, we have not been very good at doing that. And so they're going to have to, they're really starting to lean in okay. to tell us exactly how to do that part of our job, so which honestly, in my now. opinion, yeah. Because it's coming. Yep. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. This has been such an interesting conversation for me. Um, I, okay. I want to end by asking you a question I ask of all our guests. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite business book and why? You know, I, I started off having a little bit of a hard time. I'm like business books. I don't read a lot of business books and it's, it's true. I really, I don't. But, um, but my absolute favorite one that I have read and reread and listened to and done the workbook for and all the things is the Fix This Next for Healthcare from Casey Compton. Casey Compton. I, yeah. yeah. It's such I'm a good sure one. that's a repeat on your shelf. Yes. It's, it's already on the bookshelf. I started that book when it first came out. And, and was determined to just read one chapter until I finished that. And, and like when I, then I could graduate to the next chapter and it took me forever to read it to a place where I was like, okay, I'm getting the flow of these pieces and I'm doing this stuff. I, I don't necessarily recommend it my way, but that was the way I knew I wasn't going to skip to the part I thought I was in. I was really going to have to sit and struggle with the part I am in. And that was really powerful for me. Did you find yours on yourself? Yeah. So I, I pull you listeners, you can't see it, but mine is so close. I just, I reached my hand over and pulled it. Like I, I there's a couple of books that I reference often and they're just, they're, they're stacked right over here within, yeah. within arm's length. Um, yeah. All right. So shout Absolutely. out for Casey Compton. That's such a popular one. Tara, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, you have a couple of different ways that people can work with you. I'm sure like, I know I 
I've had my, my wheels are churning after you, uh, after this discussion, if someone is thinking about adding interns to their practice, you have a course for that. Tell us about it. I do. I have a self-paced course. It's how to have interns in your practice. And you can get there by how to have interns in your practice.com. Or you can go to my main website, which is just drtarasanderson.com backslash interns. And you can get there as well. Perfect. And we'll link that in the show notes, but I love that the website is how to have interns in your practice.com. Like it's so, it's so simple. So, so easy. hopefully you remember <laughs> that go, go Google it right now and go find that. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. If you're looking for accounting help, head over to therapyforyourmoney.com slash accounting to find information about my accounting firm and all of our specialized services just for private practice owners. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Just head over to iTunes, click on ratings and reviews, and give us a quick shout out. We really appreciate it. The information contained in this podcast represents the host and guest's general opinions and should not be construed as personalized accounting and tax advice. Listeners should consider all facts and circumstances before applying this information and seek appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. Any info provided does not constitute accounting, tax, or legal advice.